Let's do this. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, some of you, I, I went long last week, so I'll do better this week. But some of y'all, you quit tempting me now. You're like, no, you keep going, keep going. Some of these people, you're going you're gonna to fool around and be here till 2 in the afternoon one of these days. So just be careful. Don't be tempting me. Don't be telling the a preacher to keep preaching, you know, that's, it's, I don't know, that's not, I don't know, always a good thing. Anyway, John chapter 3, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, we started this gospel, it's, it's an awesome, awesome book, um, and last week we got to see the first miracle of Jesus, uh, the, the turning water into wine, we got to see and read about Jesus going into the temple and uh, just clearing the temple, getting rid of the, the, the money exchangers, and we, so we got to see this Really cool opportunity to see this side of God. As we know, Jesus is God, right? He, we talked about that in chapter 1. And so we got to see this really cool side of him. Um, we get to see the character, the emotions of God. I, just, I love the fact that we have Jesus to look to and, and be able to just really connect more with this is what God is like. This is who he is. And so this morning we get to embark on chapter 3, which is what a lot of people would probably, arguably say, it's, it's the most famous uh, chapter in all of the Bible. I, I, there could be some argument there. I, I know there's other ones. There's, there's Romans 8. There's, there's other stuff that you'd be, ah, I don't know about that. But I think you'd have a hard time convincing someone that it's not got the most famous uh, verse of Scripture in it because John 3.16. Sports have made that definitely probably the most famous verse that we'll be reading this morning in all of the Bible uh, in John 3.16. So it's going to be a great chapter for us to dig into so much to glean from. Um, I'm also going to mention up front here that as we go through the gospel of John, we're going to go through chapter by chapter, but uh, there will be weeks like this morning where we're not going to have time to literally go every single verse by verse by verse by verse. Um, And so in those cases, what I'll do is I'll always summarize for us that section so that we don't necessarily get to cover verse by verse. But what I'm asking you to do is you read it. You know, I don't have to read it for you, right? We're past those days of when our moms would read to us. Now you go home and you can read it verse by verse for sure. Any of the ones that we haven't had a chance to do um, that way, and you can dig deeper and glean from it uh, on your own time. <clears throat> for instance, this morning we're going to be focusing heavily on verses 1 through 21, and then I'll summarize uh, verses 22 through 36 uh, when we wrap up a little bit uh, later on this morning. So um, as we head into John 3 this morning... Again, remember from last week, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his uh, early disciples, some of his early disciples. They are there because of Passover. Um, All this stuff just happened, like we said, through the temple and clearing out the temple. Uh, And Jesus has been now preaching and teaching, and it's just been blowing people's minds, obviously. Uh, This is God in the flesh, and he's preaching and teaching, and everybody's just kind of like, what in the world? Who is this man, and and how is he able to teach and preach like this? People are being converted. And so this is also what prompts the the person we're going to meet today to say, I got to talk to this guy. Like, I got, this is messing with my mind, and and it's a very smart person, but yet he can't wrap his brain around this, and so he's like, I've got to go talk with Jesus. I've got to have time with Jesus. And so we're going to meet this man today. His name is Nicodemus. Uh, he, again, a very educated man. He's a member of the Jewish council, uh, which is also referred to as the Sanhedrin, which um, it's similar to what we would look at as like our Supreme Court today. They would kind of rule over Jewish law. Uh, and so eventually they'll also be the ones that send Jesus to Pilate and, and say, you know, we want him to be crucified. And so they didn't like Jesus for the most part. The Pharisees especially, which is who made up this, this council. And 
the reason that most of them didn't like Jesus was because he called them out all the time. He had no problems calling them out for their hypocrisy, calling them out for their misuse of the law, the way they would do these things. And so obviously Jesus made a lot of enemies with these guys. They didn't care for him. Um, and then there's Nicodemus, who's one of these guys that, again, a part of this group that tends to not like Jesus, but he's so blown away by who Jesus is so far, what he's seen of him, what he's heard him preach about, the miracles he's seen him do. He's like, there's something different about this guy. Maybe we've got this all wrong. I got to check this guy out. I got to have a meeting with him. I got to talk with him. And so at the very least, he's curious about Jesus and he, he wants to spend a little time with him. Now, he's going to come to Jesus at night. And that's one of the things he's, he's famous for, the story is famous for, is he comes at night. Um, I've heard pastors refer to it as Nick at night. It's like a way to help people understand it or remember it. But, uh, you know, he's coming at night for a very specific reason. He doesn't really want anybody to see him do this. And the reason is because he's really not supposed to, he's supposed to be on the side of we don't like Jesus. And so going and talking to Jesus, if people, it's just like in Wachula, right? If people see you with somebody else, you know, the rumors are going to start. It's just going to be like, mm-hmm, I saw you at such and such. Did you see someone's? And they're going to make up their own stuff. They're always going to make up their own stuff. And so this is kind of similar. It's like if they see him with Jesus, there's a few things that could happen to Nicodemus. One is they, people could start saying, oh, he believes in Jesus. Oh, he is, he believes Jesus is the Messiah, that he believes all that stuff that he's saying, that he's really is God. Uh, and, and it could get him kicked out of the Sanhedrin for uh, for sure, but not only that, I mean, it could cost him possibly even his life. I mean, there there was a lot of at risk here for him to go and possibly be seen with Jesus. So he goes at night, um, uh, and it's very interesting, as we're going to see, he's just got a ton of questions. But the questions that Nicodemus has, what's really interesting is, there's still, there's some of the same questions that people still have of Jesus to this day especially about when it comes to salvation. And so we're going we're gonna to learn a lot today. Uh, we're going to glean, hopefully, a lot from this uh, and what Nicodemus has to ask of Jesus and what Jesus tells him. So let's read the first 15 verses together, and then we'll spend some time trying to unpack that um, as we move forward. So it says, verses 1 through 15, John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. And said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can somebody be born again when they are, not, when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you, but you, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses 
lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So we're going to stop there. We've got this man, right? We have this Pharisee sneaking around at night to talk with Jesus because he's super curious about Jesus. And I'm going to give you a little side note. Some of y'all like these things, some of y'all don't. So some of y'all can take a nap or some of y'all can pay attention. But this is a side note here about Nicodemus that I always think is super, I don't know. I, I just like to know this kind of stuff. <clears throat> a lot of people wonder, did Nicodemus ever get converted? I mean, he had this whole moment with Jesus. Did he ever accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior? You know, and we're never told in Scripture plainly, yes, this is what happened. That he was converted and he gave his life to Christ and he went and was baptized. Like, we, we have that story so many times over in Scripture, but we don't know that about Nicodemus here. But I personally think that he did. And the reason I think that is, you, we'll get there eventually, but when we get to, to John chapter 19, um, this is going to be like after Jesus dies on the cross, we, we read about Nicodemus, same guy, um, helping bury Jesus after his death on the cross. And, and I'll read it real quick. It's only a couple verses here, but this is chapter 19, verses 38 through 40. This is what it says. is later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. And then, listen, he's kind of in the same boat here, but secretly a disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by, here he is, by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them, he didn't just drop the stuff off, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in the strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And so I believe Nicodemus may have eventually been converted um, after all of this, and as to me, this is not something you would do if you weren't a believer. If this wasn't someone you loved, something you cared about, if he went from, I'm going tonight, I don't want anybody to know, to I'm going to be part of taking his body and burying it. And, and not only that, the amount of stuff he brought was super expensive. He, was, he obviously loved Jesus, and I believe um, from this, this is just evidence that, um, that he was converted and Again, it's my opinion, but what it does is it makes this first conversation to me so much more interesting. It's like, this is what I believe it led to. At least, at the very least, Nicodemus, again, when Jesus dies on the cross, he still has this massive respect and love for Jesus and who he was. He never lost that for sure. So he starts off, Nicodemus starts off by admitting that, he's like, I believe there's something different about you, for sure. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He's like, I get it. I see it. Now, Jesus is going to help him understand that not only is God with me, I am God. That's coming later. But first, he responds to Nicodemus by launching right into this whole part about being born again. Now, that's a term that used to be really popular in the church world. I don't know that it's used a whole lot anymore. Um, But Jesus launches right into this, essentially saying to him, look, None of what you've seen, nor anything that I'm about to tell you, are you going to understand until you're born again. You've got to understand the bigger picture, which Nicodemus is understandably totally confused by. And I think most of us, if we admitted it, we'd be in the same boat here. We'd be like, wait, what? Born? I don't understand this whole born again thing. I mean, you've got to understand, Nicodemus doesn't have the perspective we have. He doesn't have the Bible at his fingertips that he can go to and read about and go all the way to the end and see what happens to Jesus. Oh, yeah, it makes sense now. We get it. He didn't have any of that, so surely we would be in the same place here. We're like, what do you mean? Do we need to, how is this possible? It can't go into our mother's womb again. What do you mean be born again? Obviously, they're using the same word here, right? Born, 
Uh, they're throwing it back and forth, but they mean completely different things by it. Nicodemus is talking about this physical birth, right? Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth. And so Jesus tells him, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now, highly debated verses here. Maybe you've had these debates with people in, in, in your uh, realm of influence, I don't know. But highly debated uh, verses here because depending on the commentary you're reading, depending on the, the denomination you're a part of, or even um, the religion that you're a part of, whatever you want to call it, they're going to take this to mean different things. Jesus says you are to be born of the water and the Spirit. Some are going to immediately take this and go, well, that means that if you aren't baptized, you, you can't be saved. And other people are going to say, no, Jesus isn't referring to water baptism here. So you have to find your, your, where you stand on this. Well, which is it? Well, what is it? You're always going to hear me say this, by the way. That my belief is the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Okay. Yes, there's some great commentaries out there. Some great men and women of God that have, you know, been blessed to write books about things, and and we can glean a lot from them. But never do I go there before I let the Bible be its own commentary. So what I mean by that is you can't take one verse of Scripture and put everything into that one verse. We need to look at the whole thing. We need to look at all of what it says before we determine something, especially as big of uh, a debate as this would be. So we take all of Scripture into consideration here, and we know that nowhere else does it say that water baptism saves you, that that saves you. Again, if that were true, it then raises a ton of other issues in and of itself. Like then our salvation now depends on something we do instead of what God has done. It now enters into this works-based religion, and we could point to it then as something that we did to save ourselves. But Scripture is very clear that God is the one who saves us. And Scripture is clear that while baptism, don't get me wrong, is a command of Jesus, from Jesus, it is not a suggestion. It is something that we are all to do as followers of Jesus. And I would say this, if we haven't, we are being disobedient. And I would even go further and say even delayed obedience is disobedience. But there's still nothing magical about the water. We, we confuse people with this at times. I've heard people... Because if this were true, and, and again, you guys have seen this. There, there's people who have been baptized. You know that they've been baptized, and then they go out and live like hellions. They don't even come close to living for Jesus, but yet but they've got that baptism certificate. And so they're like, well, this, just, this means I'm saved. No, that's, that's not how it works. The magic, there's no, you got wet. That, that's not how that works. That's not what Jesus is saying here. So if Jesus is saying that, well, what does he mean by it? Well, again, the Bible's the best commentary on the Bible, and I think he answers it in the very next verse of what he really means here. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. When Jesus refers to water, he's talking about physical birth. Any of you that have been around uh, a baby being born, you know that water, the mother's water breaks, and then the baby comes forth pretty soon after that, if you're lucky. Some of y'all are like, well, we have quite a while, actually. But that happens first, right? Then the baby is, is born. Jesus is saying there's a physical birth of water, flesh giving birth to flesh, but there's also a spiritual birth that is completely different. And then Jesus gives Nicodemus the example of what he's talking about here. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from uh, or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He says, listen, Nicodemus, d let me give you an earthly example. Take the wind for, 
for an example here, you can't see it, right? I mean, you can look around, you can't physically see the wind. What you see and what you feel are the effects of the wind. And he's like, right? He's like, you get this, right? And then he says, that's how it works when someone is born again, when they are converted, when they begin to, that you begin to see the effects of the new birth. You can't see it like a, a physical birth, but you can see the effects of it. The other scripture talks about it's the fruit, right, that we see in our lives. Jesus is saying, this is how it's going to be when someone believes and they place their hope and trust in me. You don't see the birth, but you will see the effects of it. Things will begin to change in their life. The old is gone. The new has come. That's why the Bible talks about it as we, become, we are a new creation. Change happens. This is why when someone says, you know, are, are you saved? And you're saying, well, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I said some things. I did some things. I was baptized. But there's no difference in who you were and who you are. There's no conversion. There's nothing that's happened there. there there's no rebirth that's happened. You haven't been born again. There's no change at all. I'm not saying you now are perfect by any means. But there should be a difference. And we see it. You see it all the time, right? You, see, you meet people and you're like, oh my gosh, you are not the same person you used to be. I, I can tell. There is a di- you're not perfect by any means, but you are so different. You used to be like this, and now you're like this, and the difference is obviously Jesus in between. And so this is what he's trying to explain to Nicodemus, the way that this works. And so Nicodemus, he's struggling to wrap his mind around it, and he's like, well, how? How can this be? And then it had to sting a little bit because Jesus essentially says, what? I mean, Nicodemus, you, you're one of the smart guys, right? You're a teacher. You're, one, you, you're the one that's teaching this stuff to these people all the time. And if you don't get it, man, who's going to get it? You should be able to get this. And then he starts speaking as part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Some translations actually have the word we capitalized with a capital W there. To me, that's a better way to do it. So you can see that when he says, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Then Jesus says, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then are you going to believe when I speak of heavenly things? I, you know, I've given you earthly examples of what I'm talking about. And yet you're still struggling mightily to choose to believe in me and who I say I am. I'm going to try to explain this to you with heavenly terms. You're surely not going to get this. Then Jesus says something in verse 14 and 15. Jesus doesn't give up on him. He keeps trying here. Verses 14 and 15, this is so important for you to understand. Now, you may have just skimmed through this. You've read this before, and you're like, I don't even know what that means, and you went on. And if you did that, you missed out on massive point that Jesus is making in, in uh, John chapter 3 here. He's talking about, he's going to give Nicodemus an example of how salvation works. And he does it in verses 14 and 15. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus wants to make sure Nicodemus gets the answer to his question of, how to be saved? You know, how can we be born again? Jesus wants to answer that. So he refers to this Old Testament story. If you don't know it, I'll give you kind of a, a, a synopsis of it but it's in uh, numbers chapter 21 and the israelites are doing what they do best which is complain right they're complaining again god has brought them out of egypt and they've been wandering in the desert they start complaining about the food they're complaining about they don't have enough water and they're just whining and whining and whining and whining and god's fed up with it and so god as a sign of judgment he sends these venomous snakes 
um, among them, which some of y'all are like, oh, heck no, like that's not, it's not the worst fear, right, ever. Well, they didn't like it either because the venomous snakes start coming and they start biting them and Israelites are dying um, from these bites. And so um, when this happens, amazingly, just like a lot of times, they, their attitude changes. Suddenly, their attitude changes, and they're kind of like, whoa, 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 time out, wait a minute, Moses, we're sorry, God, we're sorry, uh, Moses, please pray on our behalf, please help this to, to all go away, um, and, and it's always amazing to me uh, how your attitude can change with the little discipline comes your way, right? Um, parents, this is, make the note of that, not, not the snakes, but just make a note, I'm not trying to say, I don't want you to be like, what, the pastor's like, get some venomous snakes, your kids will straighten right up, that's not what I'm trying to say at all. Please don't quote me on, on saying that. I'll be going to jail. But and I am saying this is what happened to them. And all of a sudden it got their attention. And, and uh, they're like, okay, we're, we're, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Matter of fact, I'm just going to read you just a few verses of it so you know I'm not making this stuff up. But 6 through 9 of chapter 21 of Numbers, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It says, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned and we spoke when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So here is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. This is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and, of course, us as well. He's saying, I'm going to be raised up. I'm going to be raised up vertically. I'm going to be put on a cross. And these people, when they that look to me, when they put their faith in me, they will be saved. Just as the Israelites looked at that pole with the bronze snake, were saved from death, so will those be who believe in me, those who place their faith and trust in me. Now, we weren't there, right? We weren't there. We don't know. Uh, the scripture doesn't say, but I believe that those who were bitten and they were dying, I don't think they struggled with, you know what? Nah, I'm not looking at that pole. I just don't think that's what happened. I, don't, I think you got bit by a snake and you start getting really sick and you realize I'm going to die. You're like, oh, I got to look at the pole and I'll be saved. This is a no-brainer. Of course, I'll do that. And, I, and they, they obviously, the scripture says they did that. But here's the very important connection that I want you to make sure that you get this morning. This is what I believe is the difference in uh, the Israelites and us today. And I, if you've been, if this is now back, come back to me. Like if you earlier when I was like, say, take a break, come back now and hear me on this. This is important. See, the Israelites were very aware of their condition and their need for help. That's why they were more than willing to look at a pole and be saved and, and not die. You don't get by, bit by a venomous snake and begin to get sick and go, oh, how did this happen? I didn't expect this to happen. You, expect, you realize why you are in the condition you're in. in. You're in. I just got bit by a snake. I understand why now I'm in the condition I'm in. I also know what I need to do, because Moses has taught me what I need to do in order to be saved by this so I don't die. They understood their, their condition. Because pain causes change, right? We know that. They asked for help, looked at this pole, right, for healing, recognizing their condition. They knew what their consequences would be if they chose not to. Here's what I want, what I think is one of the biggest issues that we are facing right now today in our day as to why people don't, more people don't place their faith and trust in Jesus, why they don't look to the cross to save them. And I believe it's because they don't realize their condition. 
They don't realize their condition. I, I think we, this world for so many of us has become so comfortable and we are such arrogant and selfish people that we want to do things our way. We don't recognize, especially when we're younger, because when you're younger, you just feel like I got all this life to live. I'm good. You know, you're not even thinking about the end of your life. You're just thinking about what more you can get out of this life. And so you don't even recognize the condition that you're in. They're full of pride and just refusing to believe in Jesus or our need for a savior. Or there's obviously some that they've just never heard the gospel message. They don't even know this is something they're supposed to do. Regardless, by not recognizing our condition, we are living with a false hope that everything's going to be okay, all while headed for eternal damnation. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to understand your condition. Because until you understand your condition, you won't do anything about your condition. Church, until you recognize how desperate your condition is, you're not going to, you just won't be thankful that God made away. You won't be thankful for the cross. You won't be forever grateful for Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is why, you know, for so many people, going to church then will never be something that you look forward to or something that you make a priority. Church will be completely optional. Reading your Bible is completely optional. I'll do that when I get around to it. It won't be important like other things are important to you in your life because you don't realize your condition. You don't realize you are lost and going to hell without Jesus and that he's the one that saved you and that he's the only way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way you're saved. When you recognize that, the appreciation goes way up. The, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful and thankful for who you are, what you've done, and I believe in you. And when we do that, all the other stuff comes with that. Of course I want to know more about you. Of course I want to read more. I want to do whatever you've called me to do. I want to be faithful. I want to be obedient to whatever your word tells me. And the first thing you tell me is to be baptized. So of course I'm going to do that. And then from there, what's the next thing? How do you want me to love people? How do you, how do you want me to handle uh, everything in my life? My finances. How do you want me to parent? How do you want me to work at my job? All of it's in here. God, God I want to follow you. That's not going to happen until you realize your condition and then realize who saved you from your condition. When that clicks, then the conversion will happen. And then, like Jesus said, then you'll start seeing the effects. People will start seeing those effects as well in your life. This is why Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to recognize your desperate need to have your sins forgiven. And the only way to have them forgiven, the only way for you to be saved is through me. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is where the most famous Bible verse in all the Bible comes in next. It's where, where we, just, we just see how much God really does love us. Jesus explains the gospel in the simplest way that he could to Nicodemus. And, of course, it's why it's so famous. Because now we get to see all that stuff we just talked about. Jesus has just set all this up. And he's like, listen, Nicodemus, you need to understand this is what you need to do. You need to understand your condition. You need to understand how it works. And let me tell you why it works this way. Let me tell you why God's done this. And that's why this is what makes John 3.16 so much more beautiful than it already is. So listen to 16 through 21. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear 
that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So Jesus essentially says to Nicodemus, this is my invitation to you. And we could sum it up really in one word, right? Which is love. Like here's, here's your invitation. God so loved the world. Not a select few. God so loved the world. And he sent me. This is Jesus talking. He sent me, Nicodemus. He sent me as a way for everyone to be saved. But you have to believe that. You have to look on me. You, you have to come into the light and see you, your sins for what it is. You've got to see your condition. You've got to recognize why you're, that you are lost and you are in need of a Savior. You have to see how evil you truly are and see your need for my blood that will be shed for your sin. And I believe, this is just me, but I believe Nicodemus was thinking about this conversation as he was helping bury Jesus' body in that tomb. And Jesus says at the end here, but many people won't come into the light because they won't want their evil deeds exposed. It's, it's a very vulnerable thing that God asks us to do. You know, we don't like to go around thinking about how bad of a people that we are. But we, if we're going to be honest, we see it. We, we, we need to see it. But it's a whole other thing to be exposed by it. We have to be willing to confess our sin and our need for a savior, and then be willing to place our trust solely in Jesus to save us. And the sad truth is, many people, and you know it, you see it, and maybe you're one of them or you were one of them, many people will never do this simply out of pride. I don't want to admit that I'm that kind of person, and I don't think what I'm doing is wrong, and I think I'm fine, and you know what, I'm a pretty darn good person, and you're going to try to tell me that I have to I'm not going to try to tell you anything. God's telling you. Your issue, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with Jesus. You don't believe you really need him. You kind of believe you can save yourself, which is a super prideful thing to think. And you're wrong. And because your lack of willing to place your faith, trust, and hope in Jesus Christ alone, you will experience eternal damnation in hell. That's up to you. That's your choice. But we have to tell them the truth. And Jesus is going to tell them. He's obviously telling them the truth. Now, I stated this at the beginning, but we're not going to have time to read the rest of this chapter, but what I want to do, I want you to read it on your own, first of all, but I'm going to summarize it for you, okay? And then we're going to wrap this up. Jesus, now, after this conversation with Nicodemus, he's going to go out to the countryside, and he's going to spend some time with his disciples, and when you read this section, you're going to read it, and it's going to sound like what Jesus, Jesus is preaching and teaching, and then Jesus is baptizing all these people. But that's not really what's happening. <clears throat> you figure that out. Again, commentary, the Bible's the best commentary in the Bible. You're going to read, when we read next week, when we get into chapter 4, you're going to see right away that it was, they tell us, it wasn't Jesus who was baptizing, it was his disciples that were baptizing. But regardless, what's happening is very similar to what stuff happens even to this day. Jealousy's breaking out. Competition has happened. Because you had John the Baptist that we already learned about, Right? And we, we've heard he used to have this massive following. Now his following has dwindled. And these people are all going over to like Jesus' camp. Jesus' church is growing. And now our church isn't as big as it used to be. And they're all going over here. And there's this competition. And they think John's gonna, John the Baptist is going to be offended by this or upset by this. And instead, John the Baptist is going to do an incredible job explaining what's happening and why it's happening. And that this is such a good thing. And this is and saying this is exactly what is supposed to happen. As a matter of fact, John's going to be like, listen, I, I told you guys. Like, this is what I've been talking about all along. 
And he even uses an illustration, um, John the Baptist does here, in the end of this chapter, of the bridegroom and the bride to describe what's happening. If you're new to the Bible, the, the church is always described as the bride, and they always use Jesus as the groom. And so John kind of points to this or uses this as an illustration. <clears throat> and he's, he's like, man, I love that I'm getting to see this wedding happen. I, I, I'm getting to see the, the groom and the bride come together. This is a beautiful thing for John to witness and see. He kind of refers to himself almost as like the best man at a wedding. Is the way he's kind of looking at this. And he's essentially saying, my job is done here. I'm so joyful that I got to be a part of this wedding happening, helping introduce the bride to the, the groom. And, and so John is elated, but he's not upset about this at all. And he's trying to explain this to them. And then he makes it very clear. He's like, matter of fact, listen, I got so much still to learn. And by the way, I've got to make him much greater and myself much less. And it's a very famous scripture that you've probably heard before. Many of you probably haven't memorized, but that's where he says it in John 3, verse 30. He says, he says, he must become greater, I must become less. He's referring to Jesus. John the Baptist is referring to Jesus. He must become greater, I must become less. In church, this should be every Christian's mantra. Right? That this is, this is what we should all strive for each and every day of our lives. Every day praying, God, help me to care less about myself and my own gain and instead make my life more about you. That's what John the Baptist is saying he wants to do, is doing. It's what we, you and I, should be doing as well. And then John the author, not to be confused with John the Baptist, but John the author here, he wraps up chapter 3 by summarizing what Jesus told Nicodemus. And he ends it with verse 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So it's super clear. There's only one way for anyone to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ. He is not a way. He is the way, the only way, the only truth, the only life. And so what God is telling us over and over throughout this chapter is either you can be responsible for your own sin. You can go ahead. You can try it. But I'm telling you when that your sin is going to be met with my wrath. And what that's going to result in is eternal hell. God doesn't pull any punches. He's, he explains it over and over and over again. He's not doesn't make this hard for us at all to understand. Is it hard to hear sometimes? Yeah, I, I think it probably is, especially for those who aren't saved. But he's telling us over and over again that, listen, you can do it that way or you can look on my son. And you can believe that he is the Christ. And you can confess that you are a sinner. Let your sin be on him and you can be forgiven. And why somebody wouldn't do that is beyond me. Why in the world you would choose to, I'm not going to do that, other than arrogance and pride and thinking that you know better, thinking that you're, you know, oh, well, there's just no God. Good luck. The fact that you can look at this world and you can look at the design behind this world and you can look at science. People always want to say, well, science disproved. No, science a million times over proves the Bible is true. I don't know what one you're reading or who you're listening to, but I'd sit down with you any day and show you verse after verse after verse of where it just keeps pointing to the truth. The amount of faith that you are having to have to say there's no God is unbelievable to me. If you ever got converted, you'd be a heck of a Christian because if you got that much faith to believe there's not a God, man, when you realize that how, how ridiculous that is to even think, I'm telling you, there's just too much proof. It's like there, there's so many other things we believe that we have such less proof of and we're so willing to believe it. It blows my mind that somebody's like, they don't want to believe this, but that's up to them. God gives them this choice. But he also is 
kind and gracious enough to tell them the results of those choices. And this is the gospel message. God so loved us that he sent his one and only son to die in our place, to take our punishment so we could be forgiven and we could live forever with our Lord and Savior in a place that can't even, we can't even begin to describe it with our limited vocabulary. Matter of fact, John, it's interesting that John, the one that writes this book, he's also the one that writes Revelation, right? And he tries, he does his best to try to, to explain this, this gift that we're going to have of heaven one day, but it's just too great. It's too grand. It's too amazing for a human to try to describe with our limited vocabulary. But what we know, what we can't understand is that what Jesus explained to Nicodemus, that the only way to enter into the kingdom of God is to be born again. And if you haven't been born again, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to offer you an opportunity to do that this morning. It, you know, some people are like, well, that just seems like it's so easy. Trust me, living for Jesus is anything but easy, but confessing him as Lord and Savior, yeah, God doesn't, God doesn't set up some big stumbling block for us to have a hard time coming to him. He says, it's an offer to you. It's on the table. If you want to place your faith and trust in me, he's like, we can do this. And when you do that, I'll begin to help you, change you. You'll begin to, you'll be born again.